0: Sound design. Sound design live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. This is war with no welcome to Sound Design Live today. My guest is front of house engineer for Lincoln Park and Allison Chains, most recently, but has also worked with some other bands you've probably never heard of, like Kid Rock and System of a Down. Ken Pooch Benjutin. Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Nathan. Really appreciate <laughs> it.
0: Okay, so I definitely want to talk about mixing, and touring, and hearing health. But first of all, what is your favorite TLC song? Go, go, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> uh, waterfall,
1: isn't it? I don't, you know, I don't know. That's like the hit song. You uh,
0: don't know? I looked at your resume. You're all <laughs> the TLC is all over your resume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I want to know how you got your first job in audio.
1: Oh, geez. Um, well, I mean, uh, it, it, it kind of all started uh, as I, I've been a musician all my life. And, and um, one of the things, I was in a band that, that won a battle of the bands in high school Um, And the the prize for the Battle of the Band uh, Prize or whatever Was a weekend in a studio in Los Angeles Uh, And so we went in as a band to record You know, like two songs at a a studio in Los Angeles This was in the late 80s um, 1986 or something like that And... um, I I spent the whole weekend not paying attention to what I was playing. I spent the whole weekend paying attention to what the recording engineer was doing, mm-hmm. and and really just kind of fell in love with. I'm like, I want to do what that guy's doing, um, and uh, and and fell in love with that whole thing. And then, um, you know, as I graduated high school, uh, I applied to the Berklee College of Music in Boston. Um, and actually won a scholarship to go there. And so uh, when I went to Berkeley, I, I did some intensive study of my instrument, but um, uh, they also had a music production and engineering program, um, and I immediately gravitated towards that. Um, and, and also when I, when I first uh, went to Boston, um, I went to a local studio there called Newberry Sound, uh, and basically just begged them for a job. Um, and I started there as a runner uh, and a guy that, you know, cleaned up the trash and all the kind of stuff after sessions. Um, and I worked there for the four years that I went to Berkeley. And by the time I graduated from Berkeley, I was the head engineer there at Newberry Sound. Oh, so.
0: nice. So that's where you... So Newberry Sound was your first job in audio. It was, yeah. It was and, really the fir- my
1: first gig in, in there.
0: So. And so were you there wasn't any kind of uh, special technique you used to get that job? You just walked in and said, hey, I want a job?
1: Pretty much. I mean, you know, uh, I think um, you know one of the things that you have to do to break into this industry is pretty much be willing to do anything. And and I really was. I I walked in there and talked to the studio owner um, and just said, hey, man, I'll clean toilets, I'll empty trash, I'll do whatever as long as you let me hang out and watch what these guys are doing. Um, and, and that's really where I, I kind of gained my in.
0: And it wasn't just that you were willing to do anything. You were probably good at doing anything. So well, good at cleaning sure. those toilets <laughs> and good at making, you were responsible because you wanted to show them that you're a good worker.
1: That's, that's exactly right. You know, I made a mean cup of coffee, so I got to keep my gig. Oh,
0: yeah. Um,
1: you know, uh, that, you know, I mean, we're talking about the late 80s. We're talking about when studio, you know, the only place that you could record a band was were studios, really. Uh, not like the industry is now where you can just make a record in anybody's garage, you know. Um, so. I had motivation to, uh, you know, to, to work in the, in the studio and learn what I could from, you know, artists. Um, and when I say artists, I mean recording engineers and producers, not necessarily musicians,
0: you know. Mm-hmm. So you were motivated and you knew you would do anything to get started. But now looking back over the last 20 something years, what do you think is the most important thing you did to build your career? Was there a moment when you are like, yes, this is the thing that's going to work for me?
1: Right. I, I think all of, all of that is people skills. Um, I, I'm really good. I, I've learned that I'm really good at um, kind of anticipating what people's needs are, and especially anticipating what crazy people's
0: needs are. <laughs> are you talking about artists? Hey, hey. Yeah, I am. Crazy people. <laughs> um,
1: you know, I mean, let's be realistic about it. Most large artists and, and even some younger artists are, are, you know, they have a little bit of a, a, a weird grasp on reality. Um, you know, some of the artists that I've worked for are, are guys that were instant millionaires when they were 18 years old. Oh, uh, wow. And that is... You know, I mean, money screws people up, and and uh, and certainly never having worked a real job in their lives, and then all of a sudden being an instant millionaire, um, you know, makes them have an, a skewed version of reality. All right, uh, well. But- But I am, you know, I think that's one of the tools, the best tools that I have before I'm even able to show what my skills are or my skill set is as a producer and and recording engineer. um, I had to be able to get along with those people and to have a conversation um, with people without having them, you know, go, hey, that guy's strange. I don't want to deal with
0: him. (laughs) Well, Um, teach teach me some people skills then. What is something that you've seen someone else do wrong where you're like, oh, that guy doesn't even know how to have a conversation. Or what's something that you've seen yourself do right over and over again where you're like, when this guy comes to me complaining about this thing, I say, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Uh, You know what?
1: A lot of it is exactly what you just said. A lot of it is being a babysitter and being like, you know, hey, man, this is going to all work out. It's going to be great. You're going to have to trust me, you know. Um, And, you know, I've thought a lot about um, my success and and how lucky I've been. I, I feel very blessed to be in the position that I'm in. And, you know, the old adage of being in the right place at the right time has certainly happened for me, um, I, I was definitely in a couple of positions where I was like, OK, well, I'm I'm in the place where I can actually show my skills. But you know what? Some of the skills that I have are, are just God given skills, um, much like there are great guitar players in this world. And then there are guitar players that are just good. Um, I've been blessed, um, to have just some, some skills, some listening skills and some abilities, um, in the recording engineering thing. You know, I have recording, I have people ask me all the time when I'm doing a mix and they're watching me mix, I'll have, um, an assistant or someone say to me, Hey man, that, you know, whatever you just did right there is amazing. And how did, how did you know how to do that? Um, And oftentimes, unfortunately, my response is, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea how I knew to do that. I just knew to do it, you know, so that there's some of that um, that I think is is part of this. But but what really um, I think I had the opportunity to do and and I feel like I have A need to pass this kind of knowledge on to a younger generation is, you know, I got to be an assistant engineer for some amazing producers and engineers. I got to watch them work. Um, I got to steal what their, uh, you know, the basics of how they work. And, and, um, I I still use those things today. You know, um, uh, I, I worked with a bunch of great, great producers and engineers in Los Angeles that, you know, um, mic technique for instance you know i I worked with a producer engineer that once made me spend an entire day with a pair of headphones and i was the assistant engineer he made me spend an entire day just moving a 57 microphone like literally centimeters i mean (laughs) barely moving the microphone and he would say well stop let's listen to that and the guitar player would play and he'd say, okay, move it to the right, just, you know, oh, just move it, move it. Okay, stop. And what I gained from that, you know, I mean, that's a little bit crazy, but what I gained from that is just how important mic placement is and what the techniques that he was using and the microphone choices that he was using. Um, 20 years later, I still, I still, you know, gained knowledge from that. Um so I don't know. I went. I went a little bit aside, uh, askew of, of your question, but
0: uh, no, that's yeah. good. It's a good example of of how you learn those things from other people. And, and yeah. I'm trying to get some specifics out of you be, because it's so many times that people say, "Well, you're good with you got to be a good people person." But yeah. I, I for a long time, I thought I was a good people person, and maybe I was. I thought I had social skills, and then I would see other people do it who. Um, we're doing better in business, and better at getting clients, and better at all these things, and had more success in their career. And I was like, what? "Oh, okay, you really do have people skills, and we're much better at it than me." And that's when I really um, started learning when I saw other people who were much better at it. I get it. You know, I mean, uh,
1: um, I think that in general, people can sniff bullshit. Um, so the people that I see that don't succeed very well. Are the people um, that are uh, fearful or scared for their jobs or whatever, and say the things to an artist that they think they want to hear? Um, when I work with an artist, um, the only relationship, the only kind of a relationship that I can have with an artist is an honest one. Um, and if they don't like that, I mean, I am sure that I have lost jobs because I said something that, um, they didn't want to hear. Um, but, but on the other hand, I think I've kept jobs because a lot of these artists are surrounded by yes people and people that tell them, Oh, that was the greatest, you know, that what you sang right there was the best thing in the world. Um, and if I don't believe it was the best thing in the world, I'll be the first one to say, Hey man, you know what? I thought that was really great. Um, but let's try doing it this way. Um, and I feel like I get respect from artists because, you know, they know whether they're singing great or not, you know, they, or, or playing better, playing great or not. They, they understand all of that. Um, and, you know, when someone's just saying, "Oh, that was the greatest performance ever," and let's just keep that take or whatever, um, you know, I, I think that they don't respect those kind of a people. So They respect someone like myself that says to them, "You know what? I think we can get something better out of you." Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an example.
0: Yeah, I think I heard someone once say that you know, you're finally discovering what's unique and authentic about you when you're when you're turning away clients or turning away artists because you should be. If you if you're saying something that's important to you, something that's unique, something that's authentic to you, then there are going to be plenty of people who don't like that.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first 2 years of interviews with audio industry leaders. Do you carry uh, system measurement equipment? And um, if so, what is your procedure once everything is set up to make sure everything is running as it should be?
1: We do uh, carry system measurement um, stuff. Um, uh, You know, I have been... It's interesting that you asked this question because, uh, you know, I've been using smart, For years, um, as kind of an RT, just as an RTA, and not really understanding all of
0: its other functions, those fancy Um, dancing lines.
1: Yeah, right. And I I mean, I I had a grasp of it, but I had no desire to learn for it. First off, let me just say that I I believe that being a great system engineer is a whole different set skill set than the skill set that I have. Um, I, I believe that a, a truly great live show is when a system engineer that has a different skill set than I have and me come together as a team and create, um, you know, what the audience hears. I, I really do believe it's a team effort.
0: You know, John, I'll just interrupt you real quick because John Huntington, who I interviewed a couple of years ago um, and teaches in New York City, told me almost the exact same thing. He feels like they're really different jobs, kind of a different skill set. Um, and you're listening for different kinds of problems,
1: for sure. Um, and I, I rely um, on my system engineer heavily. Um, I am I am definitely one of those guys. You know, I come from a background of being a recording engineer, so um, uh, you know, I what I understand are near field monitors. And uh, a mix in front of me, and and uh, stereo depth, and left and right, and all that kind of stuff of a near field monitor being in front of me—that I get. Um, so when I twenty years ago, when I first got thrown into live sound, I was like, "What is <laughs> what is going on? This is not at all like a, a pair of near field monitors," Surprise. you know. This- um, and we, you know, I mean, literally we'd be high-fiving when you could hear the vocal, right? You know, <laughs> if, if, you, if you could hear the vocal the entire show, we were like, at the end, me and the system engineer were high-fiving going, man, we had a great show. Um, well, what's interesting to me is that it's, it's all kind of come full circle. And now, uh, the you know, with the, the uh, equipment that we have these days and the, and the stuff that we can do, it, uh, PAs act more like near-field monitors to me, so it, I understand them more. However, um, having a great system, system engineer that understands the, you know, the mathematics and the complexity of making a bunch of sources all arrive at the same time uh, and, and be, uh, you know— the, the nosebleeds be, be the same that the, you know, in front of the stage is getting. I think that's a, that's a huge art that, you know, a lot of those skill sets I don't have. Um, but recently because of, of, like I said, the equipment kind of coming around and all that kind of stuff and, and also for my own quest for knowledge – uh, I went to Smart School and really kind of learned, you know, what all that stuff does.
0: Oh, nice! Um,
1: and and you know, I mean, which was weird for me because I'm like, here I'm, I'm, you know, 20 years into this, and I make some pretty big shows and have um, some great system engineers with great knowledge who have who have taught me a bunch of stuff. But I was like, you know what, I want to go to the three-day smart school and just learn it, the basics like straight from the beginning again. And it was very, very helpful. So um, coming full circle, yes, we do use um, system tuning tools. I do use them. Um, my system engineer spends um, most of the time in regards to system design as well as system tuning on the day. Um, it's really kind of like uh, a mechanic working on a car and then throwing the keys to the driver and saying, okay, here you go, have at it. Um, that's, that's how I picture it between my, my system engineer and I. Okay. Um, so he does most of that kind of stuff. He consults me about stuff. Um, and my response back to a system engineer, any system engineer that ever works with me is, um, I went, I was going to concerts in the seventies and I went to a bunch of concerts when I was a kid, um, where I couldn't hear a thing and I had worked a month and a half mowing lawns to pay for that $15 ticket and was pissed. Was <laughs> right. Yeah. So now we're talking about a hundred $150 tickets, um, you know, two of those plus parking is a hundred bucks, plus he probably took his wife out to dinner. You know, there's another 150 bucks. You know, by the time someone's done, it's a thousand dollar night <laughs> <to these> people, <laughs> right? Um, so my conversation with the systems engineer is always like, Hey, listen, man, see those two people walking right there, they just spend a thousand bucks, and they may not be sitting like in the front row. But they better damn well get the same show that that dude in the front row is getting. Mm-hmm. So coverage is, is important to me beyond anything else. The day that we have the technology, and that day is coming soon by the way, the day that we have the technology in, to have every single seat in the house in whatever venue sound the same um, is the day that I'm gonna be completely happy with what's going on with my system.
0: And then do you have a measurement microphones that you leave set up throughout the venue so that you can measure during the show, or do you just have one at front of house?
1: We have one in front of house. We use Smart 7, and we do set up, oftentimes set up, seven microphones along with uh, one of those being a, a transmitter a Roamer uh, that we can move everywhere. Um, but during the show, uh, we pretty much... Say that the system has been fully tuned and we set it up as, as an RTA for that, for that much, for that mm-hmm. point, uh, just one in front of house. Um, but I do count on, you know, my system engineer makes lots of walks, uh, walks all the way to the top of the stairs, you know, nosebleed seats and sits there for, you know, five minutes. Um, my, my system engineer is never with me during a show. I'm pretty much alone on my own island there in front of house. Uh, I count on him to to make adjustments, um, it,
0: you know, in certain zones. And, oh, okay, yeah. so you're not making requests of him and vice versa.
1: Negative. Um, he's on his own. He walks around with, uh, you know, usually a, a wireless tablet, uh, makes adjustments to zones. Uh, he'll spend a bunch of time, you know... we're we're people that have worked together and done a lot of shows together. So he'll, he'll spend time sitting in front of house, seeing what it sounds like there. And then his job in life is to go walk elsewhere and make it sound the same.
0: So just one more question about this. You did mention how ideally you would love to have um, perfect coverage, same sound everywhere, every seat. Have you, what kind of conversations do you have with your system tech, um, in terms of designing the sound system? What kind of changes have you made over the years to try to make that happen or plans for the future that you have?
1: For sure. Um, I think that one of the biggest thing that, uh, <laughs> production managers and and the money people don't like, uh, is that I demand a large amount of speakers. Um, and People look at that and they say, "Well, how come you know? How come he's asking for you know? For instance, like if we go do a festival or if we do somewhere where we're not carrying PA, um, the the spec for that is, is it's a huge amount of speakers. You know, um, for instance, in a 270 arena kind of place, you know, we're we're talking about 72 line array boxes and and a, a shitload of subs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now." People look at that and they say, well, holy shit, you know, this guy wants to mix this, you know, ridiculously loud. He wants to, you know, what? why would anyone request that many speakers and uh, you know, all those kind of things. And I, and I seriously get into battles with people about it because um, uh, some people request a lot less speakers than I do. Um, and the reason that I request so many speakers and the reason that we have so much stuff going everywhere is not about volume. Um, and we'll, we can talk more about volume and my thoughts on that later. But um, it's about coverage and about making sure that every single seat is getting, you know, is squirting high-end at it. <laughs> so that means that, that uh, you know, there's going to be a closer speaker stack array and there's going to be system design where there are more speakers than what other people might do um, in order to to achieve that. It's really important to me that every, every seat is covered.
0: Yeah, if you have um, asymmetrically shaped rooms or spaces and you have a big ratio of the closest seat to the farthest seat, you're going to need lots and lots of different sources to make that shape happen and make that coverage even.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: All right. And I'm going to put that in my resume. Kenneth Van (laughs) Jutten says Nathan is exactly right. All right. Awesome. Sound Design Live produces free audio podcast interviews with industry experts, product reviews of pro audio books, hardware, and software, and tutorials and articles on sound engineering, sound design, and sound system design and optimization. Subscribe today at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. Let's talk about gates. Can you give me a quick lesson on how you set gates for drums and vocals? I feel like I've never really learned. I just kind of adjust thresholds throughout concerts and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Um, Do you have a procedure you can share or do you just kind of dial it in slowly throughout the concert?
1: Um, I do kind of dial it in throughout the concert. However. You know, with the advent of uh, virtual playback and the ability to record, um, you know, a rehearsal, for Uh instance, um, I really go back after a rehearsal and focus in on specific instruments, gates in particular, uh, with drums, and the ability to take a, a DAW and have it loop a drum fill or a drum tom fill or whatever um, is invaluable tool in my world. Um, so I do do that. I'll, I'll do a rehearsal with a band. I'll record everything that they play. I'll go back and pick a section where there's a drum fill. Um, and loop that drum fill, and I'll work on it for an hour, getting it to where the gates only open when that particular drum is hit. Um, Now, the way that I do that um, is uh, using threshold of a gate, which is very important, but nowadays you can use sidechain information, and you can use... um, You know, you you can set an an EQ for the side chain to trigger the threshold of the gate only for a specific set of frequencies. So what what I do with that is um, listen to a tom by itself with virtual playback over and over again, really zero in on the EQ point of where that tom is, the EQ focus of that tom is. Uh, Say, for instance... A rack tom has uh, uh, a particular tone of, you know, 400 or 450 in it.
0: Right, because rack tones are often tuned to play a note, right? Correct, okay. correct. So you find the, the
1: EQ kind of note, um, and uh, you, you make the threshold only open when it gets that note. Um, and it, it takes a little bit of practice, and it takes a, a lot of time to get it fine-tuned but you can, I mean, it, you can make it so that a gate will not open if anything else around it. Even if there's a ride cymbal right on top of it or, um, you know, or the guy's a real basher and every time he hits the snare drum, it opens up all the gates normally. Mm-hmm. Well, if you, if you really spend a bunch of time and, and focus in on the note of the particular toms and when they, when they are triggered, you can really uh, get a nice... Gating effect going on with toms and snare and all like all those kind of things, Um, but I I caution you when I say all that. um, I am in in saying all of that. I'm not a super tight uh, gate drum guy, Um, and and the reason I say that is you know first of all the drums are, are are an instrument. The whole thing is an instrument not the rack tom, not the snare drum, not the kick drum. The entire thing is an instrument. So when I envision a drum sound, I envision myself standing in front of that drum kit, and that's where I decide where gain levels should be of instruments, right? So standing in front of a drum kit the snare drum is louder than all of the other drums. Generally, uh, the kick drum is is not as loud as most people make their kick drums uh, in in live sound. Mm-hmm. Most people take kick drum and make it symphony for kick drum, right? You know, <laughs> tons tons of kick drum solo. Yeah, I mean, tons of low end. Just because it's one of the instruments that moves the sub, um, they take the volume of it and make it in out of proportion of what. It really sounds like when you're standing in front of it, um, and that, and that drives me crazy. So, along with that conversation, and along with the whole gating technique, um, I I want to make sure that when gates are opening, they don't sound like they're opening. You know what I mean? I want the whole instrument to sound like you're standing in front of it. So I tend to use a little bit more overheads and cymbal mics than some other people do. Okay. Um, and uh, like I said, I, I tend to proportion the individual parts of a drum kit differently than some other people do, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and maybe you're not closing those gates completely. Maybe you're just uh, reducing it by say 10 or 15 db
1: correct yeah so the range setting on a gate is not all the way at 90 or whatever
0: (laughs) yeah so now that is a really good tip for drums and toms but what about vocal mics i mean if they're standing near a drummer and the drummer hits that crash cymbal game over right yeah uh
1: well here in comes the uh the first part of of uh, where my knowledge of watching other people work, uh, where, I, where I gained knowledge in all of that so before we even talk about gating you have to talk about mic choices and mic uh, placement um, when you're talking about vocals and you're talking about a, a guy that has maybe an RF microphone that roams the stage it's hard to talk about placement right because it's in different places all the, all the different times But the choice that you make for that microphone makes a huge difference uh, for eliminating those kind of things. So, for instance, if you have a loud, loud rock band, like some of the rock bands that I work for, Mm -hmm. um, the tendency in my world to choose a vocal microphone is a super tight patterned microphone uh, that doesn't allow like you would have to really point that microphone at the cymbals uh, to really have them start picking up stuff. Um, and so if you have a good uh, guy who has good microphone technique and all of those kind of things, by simply choosing the right microphone, you're choosing the right pattern for that guy, you know, the hypercardioid pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you're eliminating a lot of those things already. Um, but in regards to gating... Vocals, I do do that. Um, I use a, a Waves plugin called Max Volume, and part of that uh, plugin, it's it's an expander, a compressor, um, and a limiter. Okay, it's all three of those things, and plus has a little gate feature on it that works very nicely for vocals. Um, it's in the plugin itself, there isn't a whole lot of settings to mess with that gate. It's pretty much just threshold. Uh, but it's been specifically kind of tailored, designed by waves to, uh, to work for, for, uh, vocal gating. That's nice. Um, and so that makes it easy, right? You're just adjusting a threshold and away you go. Um, and basically, but basically behind the scenes, what it's doing is, um, it's not doing hard gating. It's, it's, doing kind of ducking more um, when it's not seeing a full signal it doesn't mute the microphone totally um, the threshold width of it is is big okay. so if you were soloing up if you were soloing up a vocal um, it basically ducks things by like six or ten db not totally muting things mm-hmm. right so as your as the the singer is walking in front of a guitar rig, you know the guitar rig is is ducked by like 60 db. But as soon as he grabs the microphone and gives it a good go uh, with his vocal, it's it opens the gate up fully, and then you know uh, so you don't the range of the gate is not is not huge as well. Kind of like the, in the toms that we were talking about.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. But in that particular
1: plugin, it works, works very, very well and eliminates a lot of those kind of things. I mean, you still have problems. Like, for instance, with Linkin Park, um, there's a keyboard riser uh, that is right next to the drummer. Awesome. Um, and one of the vocalists for, for Linkin Park goes up there and plays keys all the time. And his vocal parts tend to be more kind of really soft sung stuff. Um, and so that's great when the drummer, <laughs> you know, he's singing in the backgrounds or whatever and the drummer's bashing away. And what's even better about it is the, the actually the, the symbol that is the closest to uh, the keyboard riser is actually the one that the drummer crashes on all the time. Brilliant. Um, yeah. So, you know, even with all that gating and the proper mic choice and, and all of that stuff, kind of stuff, it was still rough to try to get a really good vocal out of that microphone. And in the end... Uh, we ended up plexiglassing um a little portion and especially where that symbol is. Um because there just was no other way to get it out of there. You know?
0: Yep. Sometimes you gotta do
1: it. Sometimes, yeah. No drummers don't like it, but uh it's, man, it's the it's the big picture. I always tell that to to musicians in general, you know, I'm like I understand that you may not like this in, in relation to the look of your drum kit or whatever, but in the big picture, you're solving a problem that is, is gigantic. You know,
0: well, you just say, it's either this or electronic drums. Make a choice. <laughs> Make a choice.
1: Yeah. Well, that doesn't go well, but yeah, <laughs> here here we are talking about people skills again. Maybe your choice.
0: That, right. <laughs> no, no, that's a good point though. I mean, um, I don't know if I've run into that. I don't, uh, drummers don't like drum shields. They don't. Why is that? Oh, the look of it. Oh, okay. I thought there was something going on with the sound. Does no, no, right? no.
1: Not sound wise or anything. It makes them feel like they're caged. Yeah. Um. And they they just don't dig it. Um. Especially rock drummers. Uh. You know. I've I've worked for a bunch that. Um. Man. I mean. Some of the greatest vocalists in the world are not loud singers. Um. You know, I I work a lot with this guy, Miles Kennedy, uh, who is the lead singer of Slash, and he's also the lead singer of Alter Bridge. And he is one of the best vocalists in the world that I know, Um, but he doesn't sing very loud. Um, And the drummer of Alter Bridge is one of the loudest drummers that I know, like one of the loudest bashers in the world. Nice combo. Yeah. And so trying to make all that work is hard, you know, um, it's difficult. Um, and, uh, the guy that worked with them before had, um, placed the, the drummer inside the, the plexiglass cage and he just wasn't digging it at all. And Mm -hmm. that was one of the first conversations that he had with me when I took it over was like, Hey man, can we make this thing go away? And And I said, well, you know, I mean, I'd really rather not, but, um, you know, if it's really important to you, let's, let's see what we can do. And, and, um, <clears throat> and actually what, what we did was um, we took the drum cage away so the drummer got happy um, and moved the lead vocalist um, stage right so that he was no longer singing in the center. Um, and so now he was further away from the drums, um, and placed a center microphone there. And, and I said to him, why don't you go back and forth between the center mic and the far right microphone? Um, and, and that way, um, you're, you're further away from the drums, but if you really want to feel like a rock star and go center stage, there's still a microphone there, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and so now, to this day, he's still he goes back and forth from center to stage right, and that seemed to work out pretty well. so I've made everybody happy. Nice.
0: Do you visit the audiologist regularly? Uh, not as often as
1: I'd like to <laughs> to be honest um, i I uh, I think the last time that I had my hearing tested was about two years ago, and that is that seems to be right along with my standard testing is every two or three years. Um, I probably should get it checked every year, but I don't.
0: What kinds of have you noticed any trends since you've been ah. doing it every two years?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so when i when I started in this business, I started mixing uh, monitors. Um, and one of the bands that I mixed monitors for was Pantera. Yes. Uh, and, uh, I mean, they you know, their stage line was totally out of control. I mean, just, <laughs> it you sa- enabled them. It sounded amazing. Um, you would stand on stage and be like, holy crap. I feel like I'm at, you know, standing in front of a small club PA. That's what the side were. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I said all the time, I'm like, I would not want to stand here for two hours. You know, I mean, for five minutes, it's pretty awesome. But for two hours, forget about it. Um, but you know, I mean, you know, I, I was young, and and they, that's what they wanted, and so that's what I gave them. You know, um, there are situations where you just can't win. You know the only the only solution for me to uh, to to you know. Uh, solve that issue was it would have come to the fact of like well hey i'm not going to do that to you guys well okay we'll get someone else to do it i mean really that's sometimes you just can't win um but anyway uh back to the hearing thing uh i i have a small dip um around 2k in my right ear where, where do you think that came from <laughs>
0: <laughs> right where you had your monitor speaker. Yeah,
1: that's right. Oh, where, right. where I had my Q wedge. Um, I always had my Q wedge on my right side. Um, and as a monitor engineer, you're always queuing up like vocal on stun. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, I have I have no question that that's where that came from. Um, and luckily, I mean, I you know. Uh, I have been concerned in the last 15 years of my career, I'm very concerned about SPL levels, and certainly in the last 10 years, when you talk about um, the new advancement in technology and equipment and headroom, and they're building amps these days that can make, you know, I mean, you can you can have a PA do 130 dB, no problem, you know. Um, and unfortunately there are people out there that um that do that on a nightly basis, but I refuse to do that and I I um you know I spend a bunch of time uh making sure that the coverage is correct so that I don't have to keep turning it up. Um and in doing so I protect my own hearing that way. Um, you know, I, I listen to I don't know, 200 shows a year or something like that, and uh, you know, it's important to be into not listen to 200 shows a year at at 106 dBA weighted. You know, it's too loud. Well, let's let's talk
0: about monitoring SPL during shows. Um, I've heard that you do that, and in several other interviews, um, I've heard you mention that you and your system tech feel that you are responsible not only for your own oral health, but the health of everyone at the show. So could you explain what your goal is in in terms of uh, measurement and what your reference points are? For
1: sure. Um, you know, this conversation could take two hours, but (laughs) the, uh, you know, and and the, you know, nowadays, um, when we're talking about measurement level, um, people around the world, everyone has their own idea of what that should be. And and unfortunately, um, most measurement guides, uh, whether they be from a governmental point or, or just a, a venue itself kind of uh, trying to take control of, of measurement um, are are based upon machinery measurement, and it's based upon something that you know exposure over eight hours at 99 dB um, is is you know going to cause some hearing damage. Well, I agree. A, a particular machine. That makes a solid 99 dB for eight hours, and you standing in front of that is going to cause some hearing damage. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, we work in an industry where there are dips and valleys and uh, moments of 104, but then there's moments of 70.
0: Dynamics. Yeah.
1: Hey, imagine that dynamics. Um, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, the music of today is not very dynamic, is it? <laughs> But um, yeah sometimes I know I listen to records these days and I just go man what what happened to dynamics but luckily as a live sound engineer and what I really enjoy doing as a live sound engineer is creating dynamics Um, there's nothing more that I like in watching an audience in front of me after they applaud after a song have to stop and almost lean forward to hear what the next thing is
0: yeah Nice. Um,
1: and then uh, thirty seconds later, nailing them with an 808 at you know 102 dB and watching them, <laughs> you know, god, holy cow, you know. And those d- dynamics cause emotion, you know, um, and, and I, I enjoy all of that. Um, so when we're talking about measured sound, um, unfortunately, the world uses all kinds of stupid terms which are not. Real, you know, um, when when someone says to me that um, I mix at 100 dB, that is not that's not a complete sentence. That doesn't mean anything to me. You mix at 100 dB? Well, that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. A complete sentence would be I mix at 100 dB A weighted at front of house, 100 feet from the downstage edge. 100 dB, A-weighted, 10 minutes LEQ. SPL. That, that is, <laughs> SPL. is a complete <laughs> sentence to me, and that makes sense. And I say, okay, then now, now we're talking. Those are, those are real terms. So when someone comes to me at a venue and says, you know, the sound restriction here is uh, 99 dB, uh, that that's not a real sentence to me. That doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. No,
0: you're saying industry people actually say that to you? Of course, yeah, of course they do. all okay. the time. Um, and so,
1: education is important, I think. And um, LEQ, uh, which means measurement over time, is um, a uh, is a tool that is needs to be used whenever you're talking about music or spoken word, mm-hmm. am- amplified music or spoken word. Um, Leq is the only way that measurement is makes any sense because of uh, dynamics.
0: And can uh, I assume that you're recording those readings every night? We are, yeah.
1: Okay. Um, so uh, then, the then the argument becomes what you know. So what is what is a good level?
0: <laughs>
1: right. there, there's arbitrary um, decisions about that, right? Because some people have opinions of measured stuff that, you know, I don't know.
0: Well, you've so, mixed a lot of shows, so I, I'm guessing that you've tested this a little bit. And you've noticed where it sounds loud enough to you. You've noticed where it sounds too loud to you. That's correct.
1: So what kind of what we've come upon is um, 102... DBA weighted at front of house, which is 100 feet from the downstage edge, 102 DBA SPL, 10 minutes LEQ, um, and that is where we generally stick around. Okay. Um, now, you know, when it, with what I just said, there are definitely moments in my show that are 103, 104, but they are instantaneous moments, and there are definitely moments of 90, 92, 94, um, you know, uh, the, the hardest part getting around this is, you know, I don't know if you've measured crowds recently.
0: <laughs> no, tell me about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, my uh, generally at a Lincoln Park crowd, the in-between songs, if you were to look at the log of my uh, SPL metering, um, you would see... <laughs> You Know if there's 11 songs, there are 11 times where it goes to 107, 108 dba weighted, no problem. Wow. Um, and it luckily it's you know it's pretty instantaneous, it, it goes to seven 107, 108 for 30 seconds, uh, and then and then comes back down, uh, you know, when they start another song or whatever. Um, but you know, you, you you enter those kind of numbers into an LEQ equation and, and you know, then I would say my median mix is right around 100 dB.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, 100 dB is not very loud. Um, if you... Uh, there's a real fine line there um, that I actually, as I'm older, I really enjoy walking that line. Um, I feel the the most fulfilled after a show when I was able to have a, the most time be 100 dB or 101 dB A-weighted um, at front of house for most of my show and still have Impact and people still walking away from that show going, man, that sounded amazing.
0: Yeah, I, I get um, it. When you're talking about not that loud, um, you're talking about compared to the other shows around you. Maybe you might come on and be possibly a little bit quieter than the headliner. I, I mean, uh, sorry, than the than the band that opened up, or maybe the other bands that are part of the festival that day. And and you feel like you know what? We don't need to be that loud. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, that's exactly right um i can't tell you how many times where as the headliner um you know i've come come out of the hole and people are just like whoa it's not very loud but if you give it a minute uh it becomes you know okay and your ears adjust to what's going on and about i don't know halfway through the first song or or at least into the second song people are cool with it you know yeah, it's songs. relative. Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: It's a lot, I've noticed it's a lot easier for people with lights, obviously. Obviously, when it's visual in a room, people say, Oh, it's not very bright in here. And then you turn all the lights off and you turn them back on, and it's exactly the same setting. And they say, that's Oh, right. that's great. Thank you.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's a great example. Um, yeah, I think that um, unfortunately, um, we have a lot of engineers in this industry that are irresponsible. Um, it's very, very easy to make things sound. Good and have impact at first <laughs> by turning everything up. Um, if you want people to go, holy shit, that sounds amazing for the first 30 seconds of any show, turn everything up because that's what people first notice about a mix is yeah. they level. Um, but over time you do that to somebody for 10 minutes and they start going, Oh God, this is so friggin' loud. You know? I mean, I, I just saw a review of a, of a show that I'm not going to tell you what show it is, but a major show where the, the reviewers, uh,
0: here just whisper in my ear.
1: <laughs> I'm not saying, uh, the reviewer, um, said something to the effect of the guitar sounded like aircraft turbines taking off. And, uh, major hit songs that everyone knows that you were not able to discern
0: oh, no.
1: that it was the song because it was so loud
0: That's too bad. Um,
1: and i i think that's yeah i mean listen in this day and age with the advent of technology and all the tools that we have at our our fingertips i really really believe this i believe it is it is um you should not we should not have bad sounding shows, period. Um, there are uh, spaces, acoustical spaces, where we have really bad times and, and it's, it makes it very difficult to sound, you know, the best that you can. And those are days that we just work the hardest that we can uh, to get it. And we may not get it or not. But a severely bad sounding show like what that reviewer said about that show, that ain't right. hmm um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that eventually those kind of engineers get weeded out uh, and they won't be around. Um, because, you know, I mean, if an artist sees that kind of a review, don't you think an artist is going to be like, well, that's not what we want to convey? Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge discussion about volume. I think people are irresponsible about it. I think, um, and and I'm guilty of it. I You know, I mixed KISS for years and and you know their whole thing is loud um and i you know those years i mixed 105 you know for sure i know it was 105 dba with and i think that's just too loud um and and i go and watch festivals and people are doing that all the time um so i feel responsible uh not only for my my own hearing, um, but I feel responsible for the hearing that people come to my shows. I do not want people walking out of my shows with their ears ringing, and I certainly don't want people to uh, say, I was at a Lickin Park show and had my hearing damaged. Um, I, that's just not going to happen on my watch.
0: Or that, you know, you push the system so hard that, I mean, it could be easily worse, and we've all heard it. You push the system so hard that there's distortion all over the place. You know, different elements, different parts of the system.
1: Yeah, Uh, um, and that's often uh, the biggest problem is that people don't spec the right amount of speakers, and so then they push... Uh, the, the equipment into levels that it wasn't meant to work in and, and then even at a lower volume because they're pushing and they didn't inspect the right amount of gear they're creating all this harmonic distortion which is in turn burning people's ears up
0: Make some noise from Mr. High Oh yeah, I know that you record a lot of their shows uh, and mix them for release online. Can you tell me about the workflow for that situation? Is it every show, and how do you get it done?
1: It was every show, uh, and there were year. There was about four years there where we released every single show to the web as a DSP. That's called a digital souvenir package. Um, and uh, that was pretty cool. It was a tremendous amount of work for me. I bet. Um, it uh, basically had me listening to Linkin Park, you know, uh, 12, 16 hours a day. Um, uh, and the workflow of that, it was um, me going into a dressing room with a set of near field monitors and a second guy, uh, our Pro Tools engineer. Who, who does uh, some of the uh, playback stuff along with a bunch of different editing and that kind of stuff. He was like my partner in crime, um, and he and I, he would take a show, he would do some editing to it um, and uh, do some initial uh, game structure and, and editing and put, throw in our template that was going on, pass it on to me. I would then spend... Um, approximately 24 hour 24 total hours of work per show um mixing every single everything because everything was multi-track so i had to remix everything Mm -hmm. um and then send that back to him he would uh kind of act as a mastering engineer and give it a second listen because after 24 hours of listening to the same thing i'm like Fried, yeah, um, yeah. so kind of a kind of a check and a double check, and then his job was also to upload, um, you know, whatever the latest thing to the webpage. People would get a download code and go and get it online. So that that's kind of the workflow that we were doing, pretty solid for about four years. Um, recently, as a revenue stream for Lincoln Park, it wasn't a big earner. Okay. Um, and so they have kind of decided to only do certain thing, you know, only release certain live things. So if something was particularly special, they'll release that as a, you know, something. So, for instance, uh, we just did a show in England uh, that was the 10th anniversary of um, their Hybrid Theory, their first record. Uh, and so they played the first record in its entirety. The whole first set, the first part of the set was the whole first record. Um, so, of course, that was a special thing. So they are releasing that as a as a deal. But uh, we are not releasing every single show these days.
0: And do you do you see this as a possible another income stream for sound engineers? Would you recommend that they maybe offer it to the bands that they're touring with? Or, or do you not recommend it because it was a big hassle for you and you didn't earn that much more on it anyway? <laughs> uh,
1: there's a fine line there. Uh, you know, I mean, I certainly... Um, two things. I It was... Fun and exciting to be be able to be part of something that I was releasing. Uh, anytime that you heard anything or anything to this day that you hear any live Lincoln Park thing, it's something that I've mixed. You know, pretty much there. They have their guys that do their records and all that kind of stuff, which I don't have any part of. But whenever they do any sort of live recording and and mixing and releasing, I get to do all that. So, you know, I got to go. Um, the The last DVD that they released uh, live at Milton Keynes was a, a 5.1 DVD mix oh, cool. to go do. So, you know that that was all fulfilling and exciting from from that standpoint. Um, it is a second uh, revenue stream. Although, um, not a large one. I think that most, uh, bands look to their live engineer to mix their live stuff because they can get it cheap out of them, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to be honest. Okay. Um, so, uh Listen, you know, if you're gung-ho and you're an engineer and you're working for a band and you want to have the ability to have a second revenue stream, and you know all those kind of things, I say, go for it. Um, i I also would caution you that it's a lot more work than you think it is. Um, and at least from my end of things, you know I, I had to do a lot of editing and a lot of um, remixing in order to make it all work. You know, Lincoln Park is a hundred inputs of stuff and and uh, so, um, you know, it's a lot of stuff to manage.
0: Yeah, it's really a whole second job. It yeah. is. Uh yeah, I mean that's the th- I
1: guess that's exactly right. That's exactly what you say. It is it really should be another person. <laughs> but if you take it on all of a sudden you're now doing two people's jobs worth of stuff. Um and so just uh, be aware that that's what you're going to do and when you bid on it for your whatever you're charging a band to do it, keep that in mind.
0: So, Ken, uh, we're running out of time, and I wanted to try and get to a couple of questions that people sent in, um, some of my readers and audience. Um, let's see. Thomas in Placerville writes, What's it like in the jungle? Since I assume you've been welcome there. Welcome to the jungle. <laughs> uh,
1: I assume you're talking about the Guns and
0: Roses fun. Um, well,
1: uh, let me tell you this I
0: have. <laughs> I have one. Actually, gonna answer the question. Awesome. <laughs>
1: Flash uh, is the most amazing guitar player I've ever worked for, and along with that, probably one of my favorite clients to work for. Um, The biggest sweetheart
0: of a guy. um, I mean, he's cupcakes to every rehearsal.
1: I mean, dude, it's almost like that. It really is. I sent him some Christmas cards over the over the years. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I would love to see your Christmas card. <laughs> <laughs> Happy holidays from Slash. Yeah.
1: Seriously, like Slash calls me on Christmas Eve every year and says, "Hey bro, how you doing? Just want to wish you Merry Christmas." We're talking about Slash, dude. The, <laughs> this guitar hero. Yeah, that's God, awesome. That um he doesn't have to call me and, you know, do that, but he's a, he's a good dude. He just is a really great guy. Um so, uh yeah he's great um duff is great uh i've worked with him i've worked with gilby clark i've worked with dizzy all those guys are great um axel uh is a handful shut the fuck up he's uh an interesting dude to work for he's got his own um opinions about how things should be and uh I can't it kind of harkens back to me having the ability to talk to crazy people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, some of the things that comes out of that dude's mouth are a little bit obscure, and you really just gotta deal with it and and go from there. Um, but I you know, all those guys are amazing musicians. It's part of what made their band what it is is all the dynamics of all of that. Um, and uh, I don't know. I hope they get back together and do a tour. That'd be awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Stephen Prague says, tell us about your approach to mixing vocals, assuming they're basically well recorded and the tracking sessions didn't do much processing after the mic. Do you have go-to EQ points? So I guess he just wants some general tips in terms of, um, mixing vocals in the studio. So do you have anything to say about that?
1: Sure. Um, Hey, if vocals are recorded well uh, and, and done well, I really don't do a whole lot to them. Um, I think when you, if you're asking me about EQ points, I think that is totally based upon whatever the vocal, whatever it is. You know, I, I can't say that every single vocal I turn down 2.5K. You know, <laughs> it's not that's not how it is you know um there are certainly uh some go-to plugins that i use um in general with vocals um you know i really like some of the wave stuff uh i like some of the universal audio stuff um i tend to go for software models of hardware things that i used to use when i was a studio guy um you know like so for instance um uh, Chris Lord Algae with the Waves people has a, 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 model of an 1176 compressor and, you know, in the studios that I used to work in, in the late eighties and early nineties were, there were tons of, of analog versions of the 1176 and I, I knew what it sounded like. Um, so I, I tend to use that on, on vocals cause that's what I used to use in the analog world. Um, so yeah i mean there there's I have a couple go to kind of plugins that I go to, but a well recorded vocal doesn't need much more than maybe a little bit of uh e q tailoring and um some good compression to keep it out front of the mix um other than that i mean that's that's really the deal
0: yeah, that's helpful thank you well, and I can tell you that Steve and I both went to uh the same college together, and we had an 1176, so he knows all about that. Nice. Excellent. Ken, where is the best place for people to follow your work online?
1: Um Yeah, it's weird. You know, I I do Twitter in bursts. I don't know why. Uh, all of a sudden I'll go, oh, yeah, I haven't tweeted for like a week. I guess I'll, you know, I don't know what the deal is. But um I, I tend to... Uh, I tend to post on Facebook quite a bit. Um, there's a, I have an alter ego on Facebook called big dog on tour. Um, and I post there quite a bit. So if you ask to friend big dog on tour, uh, that's me and that's where I post a bunch of stuff. Um, Twitter is uh, tour pooch. Um, and uh, LincolnPark.com. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, live recordings there, uh, along with there's a website called LPLive.net. Uh, they tend to share. Um, it's a whole community of people. It's a. It's interesting. It's a. It's a website dedicated to the sound of Lincoln Park, uh, and it's a whole community kind of talking about. Um, how one show sounded, or how one DSP sounded—it's uh, a—it's a really interesting site. Go check it out.
0: Ken Pooch Van Druten, thank you so much for being on Sound Design Live.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope you gained some knowledge. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to work with some really amazing engineers and producers, and, and I've feel like it's my job to pass that on. So um, send me a tweet, send me an email, anything. Pooch at waves.com is an email that I check all the time. Sound Design.
0: Hey, 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 this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it, rate it. on iTunes or send it to a friend. In the
1: wastelands
0: of today Just there's a